Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Live with Doug. We are thinking through God's Word together. Glad that you could join us. Good morning, Anthony. Pump that iron, brother. You do it. <laughs> um, so we're continuing our discussion of the church, and I want to want to clarify something as we get started here. Uh, I don't want uh, I don't want our conversations to sound like I am arguing for or against a uh, particular model of how we gather from the, in this sense, uh, where the church meets is not prescribed in the Bible. In other words, there's nothing sacrosanct about meeting in a home like we're doing, and there's nothing said in the New Testament about whether or not we should meet in a, in a larger building. That's not the point. As I read some of your comments and uh, talk to people, uh, I want to be careful here. The, the, the point is the scripture does not lay out a full or what we call ecclesiology. Theologians do that. Theologians for hundreds of years have extrapolated from the text, from the scripture, and created this uh, the, this paradigm for what the church is supposed to do when it gathers. And I would argue, and I have been arguing, that so much of it is not in the Scripture at all. In the New Testament, it's much more organic than that. We are not told, meet in these places on this day at these times and accomplish these purposes. That's not there. Even the day. I know a lot, of, a lot of Christians make a big deal about Sunday and the first day of the week. And there's no question that Christians did gather on the first day of the week in the New Testament. But it's nowhere prescribed that we are required to. And on multiple occasions, Paul talks about meeting day by day. And in the, new, in the uh, book of uh, Acts chapter 2 that we've already looked at, day by day, they were meeting in homes. So I want to avoid two extremes here. Uh, one, I want to avoid just assuming that our traditions are required by the New Testament. I also want to not uh, fall off the other side of the horse and uh, argue that there's a, a way that's... So I'm, I'm arguing against this over here. I don't want to try, now turn and say, here's what you have to do and when you have to do it. Okay. What I am really trying to stress here through this series is to get us back to what the New Testament says we are to be doing when we gather. And I have belabored the point that nowhere does the New Testament call us to gather and worship. Because that word has come far, it's been, it's been hijacked and used in a way that the, the scripture does not use it in the New Testament for the church gathering. We're supposed to be doing one another's when the church gathers. There's teaching, there is fellowship, there's eating together, there's praying together. There are things like stimulating one another to love and good deeds. I want to I wanna go there again. Uh, you know this, we've been over this, but I want to ask the question. Uh, so let me, let me show you. Oops. Hebrews 10. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. 
and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So my question throughout has been, are you, when you gather with the church, are you considering how to stimulate those brothers and sisters to love and good deeds? Or to use the language of Ephesians or Colossians, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Let the word of Christ dwell among you uh, and, and love one another, all those kind of things. Over and over again, the one another's. I pointed out uh, the other day from Hebrews 5, the writer here rebukes Christians pretty strongly because they should be able to teach others by now. But instead, they're like babies who still need a bottle. They need to be spoon-fed. He says, by now, you guys have, have known the truth long enough. You should be teaching others. Remember we talked yesterday about the, the great commission is to make disciples, learners, who is supposed to teach new disciples. You are. You are. And yet so many Christians don't. We don't think about how to stimulate others to love and good deeds. We don't speak to others with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, teaching them, edifying them, building them up. We don't consider how to love them and encourage them to pursue Christ. We don't make disciples. We don't teach them. Why? One of the reasons is we have basically concluded, whether we mean it or not, whether I mean, whether we are intentional about it or not, whether it's a, it's a stated belief or not, that's the pastor's job. That's his responsibility. He's equipped for it. And think about what we've done. We have created a, an institution where we send guys off three or four years to study and then we slap on them this, this title and give them an authority that I'm going to argue the Bible does not give them. And now we've created this two-tier system where these pastors are the ones who are authorized to teach. And not only do we give them an inappropriate amount of authority, but we take the responsibility off of ourselves. And the reason I want to have this discussion is not to throw stones uh, at anybody, but, well, two reasons. Number one, make sure that we are thinking biblically. How easy do we get caught up in, in, uh, in our traditions and never question them and never really seek the scripture? And number two, to say the church, the world needs you, Christian. Disciples need you. The Lord Jesus did not set up his church to be a top-down institution. His spirit fills every believer, and he created a body of people who are loving one another, who are teaching one another, who are encouraging one another, who are exhorting one another, who are calling one another to account. The church needs you. 
Other Christians need you and you need other Christians. You don't just need a pastor. We need one another. So that raises the question, where does the Bible teach that there is a man who is the head of a local church? Anybody? Shall I, shall I wait a few minutes and see, uh, see if anybody can uh, pull up the scripture? I'm just wondering, where, where is this found in the New Testament? Hey, Amber, thanks for ringing in there. Uh, I don't think we have met before. Glad to have you with us. Good morning, Grady. Good to see you. Mike, hello from Sweden, right? I believe that's what you said. Does the Bible teach this? Does the Bible reveal this? It, it doesn't. It doesn't. And it's been handed down to us via tradition. And there's a cost to the whole church. Uh, okay, Anthony. <laughs> Anthony got it. <laughs> That's true. There is a senior pastor in the church. Uh, his name is Jesus. He's the chief shepherd, right? He's the one. But as far as the earthly manifestation of the local bodies, the New Testament does not give us a leader of a local congregation. Uh, that sprung up through tradition. It, it happened fairly early in church history. And if you read church history, you can figure it out why. And, and we sort of gravitate toward this. Uh, there, there's a, it, it developed out of a need to protect um, biblical teaching from error. And again, we can understand this, right? Somebody like a Marcion comes along and he says, you know, that God of the Old Testament, he is a harsh, cruel God, a judgmental God, a fierce, vengeful God. And, and the God of the New Testament seems so nice. He's all full of grace. And so he begins saying, I don't believe in that Old Testament God. He's just a form of, of a, almost an angelic being kind of thing. We're going to get rid of that. And he said, I'm going to take some of the writings of Paul because Paul taught grace, but we're getting rid of all that other stuff. And Christians started saying, wait a minute. No, we believe the Old Testament is given by God. And we believe these other books, even though they hadn't been formed to a Bible yet, we believe these other writings, such as the writings of Peter and Matthew and Mark, we believe these are all inspired by God. And they teach that the same God who was around in Israel's day is, is the God of, of Jesus. And Jesus is that God. So they had to protect the, uh, the truth from error. Well, anytime you do that, you're going to uh, you're, you're you're going to uh, organize around leaders. People are going to kind of rise to the forefront, and and somehow you've got to make decisions. And this is true. This is just human nature. When we come together to make decisions, someone's going to kind of take the reins, and then pretty soon it seems very efficient and effective to let someone make decisions, one, and it is. It is very, it's way more efficient to have a leader, an authoritative decider. The problem is that's not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Keith says, how about Peter, Catholic's first pope? Uh, 
yeah, that rose up in church history, not from the Bible. Uh, Peter is not the first pope, nor was he uh, even the leader of the early church. If you look at Acts 15, when the church came together to, when the, when the church leaders came together to answer the question about whether the law of Moses was to be applied to the Gentiles, Paul and Barnabas spoke up, but their word, the apostle Paul, his word didn't carry the day. Then Peter spoke up and his word didn't carry the day. Finally, James, who wasn't an apostle, at least not a not one of the 12, because the James in Acts 15 is James, the half-brother of Jesus, not the Apostle James, because the Apostle James was killed chapters earlier. James then quoted the Old Testament, and finally his words uh, were persuasive. But the whole body, the apostles and the elders, all came together to make the decision. Peter's word was not final. In fact, James, I'm sorry, P, uh, Peter in, in Galatians, Paul calls out Peter for making a serious error regarding the gospel. So to hold up uh, Peter as though he were uh, above the other leaders at the time is just unbiblical. Um, Peter says, Peter Woods, not Peter the Apostle, what about Paul saying that there were pillars of the church? Uh, certainly, James is one of them. Peter's, right? That would be more than one. And I just uh, hopefully shared uh, that that neither Peter nor James nor Paul, any of them, were absolute authorities there. They had to put their heads together. Lon says, historically speaking, mass illiteracy directed a return to priesthood of the professional versus a believer. Exactly. And uh, Keith says it's not scriptural. He agrees with that. Good. So we don't find, um, all right, a little more comment here, and then I'm going to, Cherry says, and now they have conference things with pastors being celebrity, getting autographs. I see, yes, yeah, we, the celebrity culture has not diluted the church for sure. So let's, let's begin, we won't be able to get through all this today, but let's begin uh, dialoguing about some of this. And, and again, the, the goal is not to... Uh, let, let's be careful. Let's, let's think through this. It, yeah. So l l let me maybe give you a little autobiographical account here. I spent 25 years in, uh, in a church, a professional church situation, if you will. And for 17, 18 of those years, something like that, I was the quote unquote senior pastor. I hated that title. And I tried to change that title. Uh, we would have uh, our, our new members class. And I spent a significant portion of that time explaining to these new, these new people who were coming to our church, I'm not the top authority here. I am one among many elders. My vote is the same size as everybody else's. Uh, I am called to preach and teach the word regularly. And there is a, uh, there's a corporate side to the church in uh, 21st century Western church, right? There's this corporate side. Literally, we are a 501c3 organization. Well, we're not anymore. We're just 
group of people that meet in my home, but <laughs> the setting I was in, we were a 501c3. And as, that, as such, you have to have a president and a board of directors and, and all the officers, the treasurer, secretary, at least those three. And in my denomination, the Christian and Missionary Alliance, uh, they have their polity spelled out to the nth degree. And there is a senior pastor who is not ultimately accountable to the elders or the congregation, but he's ultimately accountable to the district superintendent who works in the district office, who oversees uh, all the churches in that district. And he uh, appoints senior pastors. And then the senior pastor is the extension of that authority over that local church. I hated that system. I went to this particular church here in Colorado, not because I cared about the denomination. I didn't. In fact, when I was introduced to it, I didn't know anything about it. But I loved this church, and they called me to come be part of the church. And my own thinking of this evolved over time as well. I was heavily influenced by Reformed theology early on in my ministry. And then as I began to really dial, dive into the scripture, I began to question some of these things. And so as I questioned them, uh, so I wasn't the chairman of our elder board. I didn't run the meetings. I, I wanted to separate myself as much as possible. And in, in meetings, when it was business meetings or congregational meetings, whatever, um, I did everything I could to portray that I am not the decision maker. If I were upfront leading any portion of those meetings, I would say I'm speaking on behalf of the elders. You see what I mean? I, I was trying to, to di I didn't like the title. I, I, I tried to get them to eliminate the title. Problem is it's in the, the polity books for the CNMA and, and I had nothing to say about it. Uh, and it was hard. And, and it, the fact is that because I had the title senior pastor, it, it you can't just uh, push against, um, oh, sorry, we got another. I don't know where these people are coming from. Another inappropriate, uh, let me report that real quick and hopefully that uh, will be gone. Um, I, ca I can't just change the, uh, the, the title. I didn't have the, the authority to change the title. And so I would tell our, our people over and over again, I am not the boss. I'm not the authority of this church. We as elders collectively are. And uh, I just, you know, that's what I, that's what I had to do. Um, uh, there was another thought I had there, but it's escaped my mind. Anyway, so where does this thought come from? Well, it comes from Ephesians 4, this idea of a senior pastor, Ephesians 4. Here's, uh, here's the text. And he, speaking of Jesus, gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Uh, if you are in uh, Southern Baptist circles, lots of circles actually these days, taken from verse 11 here is what's called uh, the APEST model of uh, church leadership. Have you heard that? I'd be curious if any of you have heard of that. Um, it comes from these, these five offices that they see here. Apostles, that's the A. Prophets, that's P. Evangelists, that's East. S, they change pastor to shepherd and then teachers. And so the argument is uh, that these are the five main categories uh, of gifting for the church. 
a pest. And so they don't refer, they don't look at the apostles as the original 12 apostles, and then maybe add Paul to it, but uh, the gift of apostleship. And so the, uh, the church planters, the pioneers, the ones who carve into new, new areas, that's the gift of apostleship, they would say. And then prophets, these are the you know, people that God gives uh, uh, prophetic words to and that kind of thing. And, and they're the ones who are, who are speaking strong words of exhortation, that kind of thing. Evangelists, like it sounds, you're, you're the one that uh, has this gift to go and, and lead people to Jesus. And then shepherd, uh, these are the caretakers for the church. And they, they really emphasize the nurturing, caring aspect of shepherding. And then teachers are just what you would think is teachers. So there's a, there's a big movement in uh, certain segments of, uh, of Baptist theology and others that uh, are pushing this apest idea. Well, that's the newer uh, presentation, but for, for centuries, uh, church leadership structures and and theories have developed from this text i'm looking at your comments here never heard of it never heard of it uh, never heard of it uh, uh, good thoughts anthony we'll speak more of that um grady says it's not that somebody won't lead or be led to step up. It's that the obligation of the believers to follow Christ and leading the spirit and not me. Yeah, there is, there's real authority. Um, well, well, we'll see that. We'll talk about that as we go. So the point is from, uh, if you read this in context, the apostles and prophets are the first century apostles and prophets. Paul calls them in the same context here, the foundation of the church. Let me go back and, uh, and show you this because uh, it's important to always read things in context, right? He's talking about the uh, God taking the old, the Jews and the and Gentiles into one new man in Christ. This is this whole passage here in Ephesians 2 is that we've been made one new. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, there's Christian, right? And he says, you, speaking to the Ephesians, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. All Christians, all believers, Jew or Gentile, all together, and we are God's household, right? Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. He's describing this uh, almost uh, historically, this is how God began building the new covenant people, the, the new household. Christ is the cornerstone. If you know the, the imagery there, that's the first one set. Right? Everything else comes off that cornerstone. Then the rest of the foundation coming off of this cornerstone Christ are the apostles whom Jesus sent out. And we see that early in the book of Acts. And then the prophets. And we can debate and discuss about you know, what those prophets were to do and do they carry on to today. But here, the context is the foundation of God's house. Well, the foundation is laid. We don't build any more foundation. 
after the cornerstone was set and the apostles and prophets laid the foundation, it's, it's laid and now we just build on top of that foundation in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. That's what we're doing now. It's what we've been doing for 2,000 years, but the foundation was laid in the first century. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God the Spirit. Uh, for you, uh, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, if you've heard of what was given to me, da 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 uh, I'm referring to this. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, if you've followed me very long, you know what that word mystery uh, means. Uh, mystery is something that was hidden, that's now been revealed. And Paul is saying this, is, this was hidden before, but now it's been revealed. That which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been in his day, it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The Spirit of God revealed to the apostles of Jesus and the prophets by the Spirit to lay the foundation of the church. Well, what is that? What is the mystery that they were told that had not been told? That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, it was there in the Old Testament, as we saw in Isaiah, if you were with us in that study, but it wasn't widely known and certainly ignored by most. And now to see the Gentiles not having to become Jews, but they were going to receive the promise as is, with the exception of, of course, of believing in Jesus. They didn't have to become Jews, didn't have to be circumcised, didn't have to submit to the law of Moses. God was going to make his people, his household, his temple from Jews and Gentiles equally. That's what was hidden that was revealed to the apostles and prophets. They laid the foundation of the church. Therefore, when Paul makes this statement, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers. There's no change in context here. This is what Jesus did to, to begin the church, to lay the foundation. So this is not the right place to go to unpack how he wants churches led today or even after this fact. So where do we go? Well, we go to the other passages that do explain how the New Testament churches after the foundations were laid were to be led. And so we're going to spend some time uh, looking at that in the, in the days to come next week. If you want to look ahead, look at Acts 20. Look at 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, some of those places, 1 Peter 5. All of those, and I'm going to give you a little preview. All of those talk about elders and overseers or bishop is another translation of the word, doing the work of shepherding. And I will try to show you that elder, shepherd, bishop or overseer all refer to the same group of men who are to lead the local church. None of them should be applied to individual men. One elder should not have more authority than any other. And there are negative effects, negative consequences in a local church that has a pastor 
who has more authority than the other elders. So we'll talk about all those things next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining me. We'll see you, Lord willing, on Monday.